0: Are you a pragmatic type? Do you, do you want outcomes regardless of whatever ideals back them? Or are you much more lofty in your, the way you think about how society should be, whether you see short-term benefits or, or not? Most of us, I believe, want society be, to be stable. But what about, what about... How does your ideal system handle things like inequality? Like What happens when things go wrong for somebody? and you find yourself in a, a terrible situation where you're vulnerable and you're stuck there without a lot of power to get yourself back up, what are the obligations of our society to, to help you or not to help you, and why? What, are, what do you want your borders to be like? Are there hard boundaries in place? How does an outsider come in? And how do you relate to the outsider that's amongst you? Uh, We ask those questions in various forms, and I suspect societies everywhere wrestle with those kinds of things. And all sorts of policies are around reflecting uh, different answers to those kinds of questions. It's one thing to come from a perspective of privilege, where you're fairly safe and secure, you're part of the established bulk of the group. I think you might see things differently if you're trying to answer those questions from someone's point of view whose position was a lot more tenuous. You know, if you're the one who needs help, you're the one with no assets, no cultural capital to draw on, if you're the foreigner seeking asylum, then suddenly you might appreciate how society ought to be a lot more compassionate than if the shoe's on the other foot, and you're the one doing the giving and the helping. Uh, Where we're up to today our story in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth finds herself in a very vulnerable situation in a new society. She's the foreigner. Uh, She's in a country she doesn't know. She's recently widowed, and she's without her family. Her own mum and dad are miles away, and the only family she's got here is her mother-in-law, Naomi, who's also dependent on on Ruth. And somehow Ruth's got to find a way to put bread on the table for not just herself, but uh, her mother-in-law. That's why she's here, her her mother-in-law, Naomi, Uh, decided to go back to her home country. We read about Naomi's tragic circumstances in Ruth chapter 1 where, uh, as as Pete recapped for us in the kids' story, which is very helpful, Um, uh, they'd moved as a family, Ruth and her husband, uh, Naomi and her husband had moved to Moab, uh, but tragically her husband passed away. She had two sons uh, who grew up and got settled in Moab, and they too passed away. And She has no one else left in the world except one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, who chooses to stick with her, no matter what, to make sure this older woman's going to be okay. So Naomi decides to leave Moab and to go back to Israel, bringing Ruth with her. Uh, Ruth's left her home country to try to take care of Naomi, and both women are grieving. One's lost her husband, the other one's lost her sons. But the more imminent problem for these two displaced women is how are we going to get by? How do we survive now, now that the men in the family are gone? Remember, this is the Near East, 3,000 years ago, and women's roles in societies was much more uh, traditional than egalitarian. You can't just go and find a job. There's no seek.com. There's no you know, pathways to higher education or vocational training. For the most part, people survived by working the land in an agrarian society. And while Naomi, the mother-in-law, she had a stake in Israel. She was from there. Her husband probably had ownership rights of some land in Israel, still held in trust in his name, and would have been retained by Naomi now that they're returned. I imagine that's the property Naomi and Ruth are staying in now that they're back in Israel. But they've been away from Israel for so long. We're talking over 10 years. I imagine the place they're staying in is in a state of disrepair. Now think about it, if today, this afternoon, you go home, you choose to pack up, lock the front door and walk away for 10 years before coming back, who knows what you're coming back to? Because anything could have happened in that time and and their land, while it may have had fields and room to plant crops, we're told they arrived back in town at the time of the barley harvest. They would have been just left fallow, I imagine, for all that time. No one's been there. No one's sown any seed. No one's plowed those fields in years. No one's been tending and watering or looking after the place, which means if nothing was sown, there's nothing to harvest. There's nothing to eat. What are they going to do? Naomi, the mother-in-law, she sounds like she's too old to go about finding work. She's in the stage of life where she would have been looking forward to being a grandmother, not trying to scratch together a living. And Ruth, she is a foreigner who has no contacts, no friends, no social network here. She's pretty much alone. And she's from Moab of all places, which wouldn't have earned her any brownie points at all because Moab was historically an enemy of Israel and still was at the time of when she was visiting. Who's going to trust? Who's going to befriend a Moabite? She has no cousins, no family networks, no one to protect her or someone had it in mind to harm her. But at the same time, you can't just sit there and do nothing, can you? You'd starve. There's no Centrelink, no unemployment benefits, no work for the Dole scheme. The one thing she has going in her favor is that she finds herself in Israel. And in ancient Israeli law, there's this one provision in it for people in desperate situations like hers. Now, there's particular laws, like from Deuteronomy, that says this. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Deuteronomy 24. says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheath, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless the work of your hands. When you beat olives from the trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. Now, Israel knew what it was like to be in a vulnerable and weak position. And to be exploited, they were slaves once as a nation. They knew what it was like to be an outsider and to have nothing. And it seems because of that, there was this compassion built into their society. Built into the harvest season, there's this provision for the foreigner, for the fatherless, and the widows. And Ruth was all three she was a foreigner, she was without her family to support her, and she was a widow. She was under triple threat, which has nothing to do with Hollywood at all. And for her and people like her, what the law said was that people who owned the land and were harvesting at the time are not meant to be totally uh, thorough in harvesting everything that belonged to them. It's okay to leave some of it behind. What you're meant to do, you go over it once, and whatever you miss in your once-over, you just leave it there so that the poor can collect and use it as they wish. Don't go back to sweep everything clean. And so what was envisioned in this law was that almost all the grain, all the olives, and all the the what have you the owner has planted would go back to the owner, as you'd expect. But walking behind, walking behind the harvesters, you could envision that there would be a number of poor people who were free to be there, invited to be there, picking up the gleanings of whatever was left over. And they wouldn't get much. But throughout the course of the day and over the whole harvest season, they might be able to get enough to live off and so survive. Imagine like yeah, you're picking grapes to wash them before you eat them. And every so often you might drop one or you might leave one there. You don't, don't see a tiny one that's not worth anything to you. Just leave it. He says, don't go back. Don't pick it up. Leave it for someone to use. This is the social welfare policy, if you want to put it in those terms. And Ruth, she either sees other people doing this and picking up after the harvesters, or she hears Naomi who tells her about it, and she is up for this. As humiliating as it would have been identifying yourself in that kind of need, as hard work as it would have been to spend the whole day in the field, what other options does she have? And so that's where we find her doing at the start of Ruth, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And last week, if you were here, I did tell you, didn't I, that Ruth, this is a love story uh, that we're looking at. So here we go. Uh, boy meets girl. Verse 4. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord, be, the Lord bless you, they answered. And Boaz asked the overseer of these harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Hey, hey the overseer replied she is the moabite who came back from moab with naomi she said please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters she came into the field and has remained here from morning until now except for a short rest in the shelter you get the impression that this is a good overseer he sounds like it's someone that you'd want working for you he knows what's going on in his work site he keeps tabs on everyone he knows who's there who's not what they're up to When they take their breaks and for how long. He's doing his job. And he's let this foreigner amongst them, this widow, to come and collect some of the leftover barley in the field in keeping with the law. And it's Ruth who catches Boaz's attention. Notice, Boaz doesn't ask about how the work's going. He's curious about this young woman. To the overseer, it's her foreignness that stands out. You see how he refers to her? Oh, her. She's the Moabite from Moab. But Boaz finds out who she is. uh, And when, when he finds out, he goes and introduces himself, which is quite a big deal if you can imagine the disparity in the power. He's the boss. He's the boss's boss, the one who owns the land and everything in it. And she's the nobody, the outsider. And he introduces himself to her. He speaks kindly to her. And who knows, maybe this is the first kind word she's heard all day, the first word she's heard all day at all. Because you get the impression that they've been watching her work, they've been seeing her in the field, but they're aware that she's a Moabite and she's not working with the other women. She's working on her own. Verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Do not go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men to not lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She's definitely appreciative. She's she's also curious, perhaps cautious even. It's a good question. Why have you noticed me? And we're not told in this whole book whether Ruth might have been a beautiful, physically attractive woman or not. It's irrelevant. Even though in our minds, perhaps it would make sense for someone in Boaz's position to notice Ruth if she was stunning. But for Boaz, and in this whole book, the one thing that is most remarkable about Ruth, the one thing that stands out about Ruth other than her being a foreigner, is, is not her physical appearance. It's her character and her care for her mother-in-law. Why has Boaz noticed her? Verse 11, Boaz replied, I have been told about all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And Ruth says, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Not only does Boaz let us stay, as you continue reading this story, he goes above and beyond. Much more than what the law required. Uh, Take a look at what he does for her. You see it in verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz says to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, and she ate all that she wanted, had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and do not reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from among the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and do not rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an effer. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave to her what she had left over after she'd eaten enough. Boaz gives her lunch, but more than that, in the details of that, you see that he honors her by inviting her to his table to sit down and eat with the harvesters, with his other men. He invites her to dip bread into their fancy olive oil and wine vinegar. And after lunch, he tells his men to not just let her pick up after them. He asks them specifically to, whenever they gather a bundle of barley and tie it together, he asks them, pull out a few stalks out of that bundle on purpose and put it down for Ruth so that when she comes, when she catches up to you, she'll have lots to pick up. This is going above and beyond what the law required. And he tells them twice in the same breath, let her be, be nice to her, don't reprimand her, leave her alone. And so Ruth ends up gathering this ridiculous amount of food. Uh, One ephah, which is something like 13 kilos of usable grain at the end of the day, that's a lot of food. Now, to give you some scale, I made some pasta the other day. My recipe uses, what, 500 grams of pasta and a couple of eggs. And that was enough for, I think, three pretty substantial meals for me and my family. 500, 500 grams, uh, at least three days of, or three dinners of food. 13 kilos of grain that she got. She, lived off, she could live off that for at least a week, probably more, just the two women of theirs. And then some. Not bad for one day's work. Plus leftover grain that he gave her for lunch. At this rate, she's going to be just fine. And Naomi, she knows that something is up. There's no way Ruth could have got that much on her own. So, uh, verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain.'" Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I reckon Ruth would have had no idea where, when she got up that morning, when she decided to go into the field, where she'd be working that day. But by the grace of God she finds herself with Boaz, who's related to Naomi's husband and who's a guardian redeemer. More on that next week. I think we're out of time today to go into it, but we'll come back to that. And she has this invitation to work not just for that day, but for the whole harvest, for the whole season she gets to stay with him, which Naomi says she should probably take up that offer because somewhere else she could be harmed that's a bit dark, but Boaz was concerned about the same sort of thing earlier. He said, stay with me, he felt he had to tell his men not to lay a hand on her, not to harm her. So twice now in this story, you get this reminder of just how vulnerable that Ruth really was. I don't know the state of what the community was like at the time, maybe there were people around who would take advantage of someone like Ruth, either because she's a foreigner or because she was a young woman on her own. But it seems Boaz is going to look out for her, and Boaz offers her a way forward. And this is the turning point of this story. Whereas in chapter 1, it was looking terrible, it was looking miserable, and Naomi was as bitter as anyone could be. She even said, it's all hopeless. I'm empty. Here in chapter 2, you start to get the sense that maybe not all is lost. Because Ruth finds grace amongst the people of God. Grace that meets her at a point of need. And we'll continue the story next week. But I wonder even from today, from what we've read and what you've heard this morning, where your thoughts and reflections have taken you. Perhaps you've been prompted to think about what kinds of outsiders and vulnerable ones we have in our midst. Maybe God's brought to mind some individuals or some groups of people who you have a growing awareness of, people who have some real needs, and maybe you've been reminded about God's concerns for those who are vulnerable as reflected in his law. Or you've been impressed by the character of Boaz who goes beyond just the letter of the law. He embodies the heart of God that's behind this law to show grace above and beyond what grace is to someone who's an outsider. I wonder how good are we at helping people feel like they belong? Particularly here in our church community. But I think it extends out to wherever we have our spheres of influence. Do you notice the outsider? Do you see them? Whether they're new or they've been here for months. Do you see them? And what would you do to help put them at ease? Would you, would you start by just even introducing yourself, to start by speaking kindly to them? Because we want to be a community where people come and whoever they are, hopefully they're able to find grace. They're invited to stay and to find their place here with us. No matter what ethnicity they might be, whatever... Whatever usual divides that keep people apart, it could be different stages in life that people are in. It could be a gender or social class or appearance or disability or wealth or religion or political views or whatever reason someone, someone just looks too hard or too difficult for us to bother with. And we don't just have the law of God that reflects to us what God's character is. We have more than that. This side of salvation history, well, we also have the gospel of Jesus. We have Jesus who, as you look at him, you see a God of grace. You see the one who goes above and beyond to show grace to us outsiders. He pays what it costs in Jesus' death, and he invites us to belong. Not because we deserve it. Not because it's impressed by our character or our love. It's out of who he is. He who is merciful and gracious. That's what our God is like. And that's how he's related to us. And if he's redeemed us from our trouble, if he's done that for us, that has to impact how our community relates to each other and the posture that we take to everyone else. We may or may not be able to influence our country's political systems to reflect what we think is our ideal. You're going to have varying degrees of success in that. And maybe trying for political solutions to what really are spiritual problems are never going to work. But as followers of Jesus, at least our life together, our church and our small groups in our community, we need to reflect Jesus' heart. The heart of the Father is full of grace and truth. We have Hospitality Sunday coming up, which is a perfect opportunity to practice Helping people feel a sense of real belonging. And don't stop there. Let's take the grace that we enjoy, the grace that God pours out on us, and let it overflow to the people around us who need it. Amen.